Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is episode number 33 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, September the 13th. First, I'll be talking to Tamara Lur, who has delved into the world of investment with a current focus on her online beauty disruptor, Dollar Beauty Tribe, designed to promote cruelty-free vegan indie brands. Lure has become globally known as a leading wellness entrepreneur. And then I'll be talking to IFM Chief Economist Alex Joyner, looking at the state of the economy. 
But first, let's talk to Tamara Lohr. Tamara, tell us about uh, your business. Uh, well, I've got multiple businesses, but um, they're all in the wellness space. So um, I'm an investor and founder of uh, wellness businesses that are Australian-based that I stores and beauty stores um, throughout Australia and America. I have hair care. Um, I have a gut health range, which is shakes and chocolates. Yeah, so I do a range of different things. I have a vitamins um, spray range, all sorts of stuff. Wow. And tell us about your sweat equity model. So sweat equity is, uh, I mean, it sounds atrocious, but um, basically what it is is rather than you paying cash to buy into a business, uh, you take equity in exchange for your services. Okay. Okay. So you take equity in a business by providing them with service. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So there's a real gap in the market, right? There's a lot of small businesses that need help with their business. Four out of five are failing, as you know. So um, they're obviously not going to get access to capital unless they've got a business that's usually over 10 mil, preferably around the 20 mil mark. And that's because that's a lot uh, less risky for investors. But before that, they often need a lot of help. So that's where I come in. I kind of fill that gap and I come in where they might be struggling. Um, I find that a lot of small businesses... Uh, capital isn't the best thing that they need from angel investors because a lot of them spend that money figuring out the lessons that um, the rest of us have by being in business and growing businesses and exhibiting them over the last 20 years. So I come in basically and I say, okay, well, if sales and marketing, because that's my background, I'm an online um, specialist. Um, I've had an agency for 20 years um, before I turned investor. And what I do is I come in and if I can see that, you know, they have a great product, they've got an MVP, which is a minimum viable product, but they're really struggling with the marketing uh, then and they haven't got the dollars to create really great marketing so that they can have cut through, then I will take equity in exchange for marketing, which they probably couldn't afford with my agency. And I basically have to get them to those key milestones. So what I do is I, we set out, okay, what do they think the business is worth? We value the business. I give it to them in services. So if it's valued at, you know, 200000 they and I'm taking 50%, I'll give them 100000 in marketing uh, spend, so agency hours and, and a bit of spend online. And then we have to get them to a certain target for me to be able to take that 50%, say. So they might say, okay, I'll need to get me to 2 million revenue. And if we don't, if I don't get them to that target from what I've done through marketing, then I give them back their equity. So how do you establish these figures? you establish it by what they want or do you impose that? No, um, look, I'm, I'm very much across um, how to do due diligence on a business. So I make it very clear that we do it like we would value a business if we were selling it in the real market or raising capital in the real market. So a lot of founders, though, think their business is worth a lot more than what it actually is. So a lot are disappointed to find out what it's actually valued at. But once we establish a, a common valuation, which usually means I have to go a little higher, then then what we do is we, we settle on a valuation amount of what we think the business is valued at. And then we look at, okay, um, what would it mean for me to take, say, 30% or 50% of this business? How much revenue would you like to be at? And then they tell me what that is and we work back from that target. And I said, okay, this is how I'm going to achieve $2 million or $5 million or whatever it is that we're, we're aiming to achieve. And then we put in a timeline for that. And that's really good for me because if in 12 months, if I've given them, you know, four or $500,000 worth of free marketing time and agency time and a little bit of capital, if it hasn't worked within 12 months and I'm not hitting those targets, I believe in failing quickly. So I'll pull out because... 
at the end of the day, if it's if I can't reach those targets, that, that business isn't probably one that I want to be on the bus of. So, you know, fail quickly, give them back their equity and move on to the next project. But I haven't really had many of those, which is good. <laughs> so what sort of businesses do you take Sweat Equity in? Um, they're usually product-based businesses in the wellness sector. I have a very clear mandate. Um, it's vegan, um, highly organic and uh, cruelty-free. And if it's in food, it's uh, zero sugar, you know, obviously vegan as well. So, you know, functional food is really where I like to sit in the wellness food space. So it's, it's a very clear mandate. So wellness foods and wellness cosmetics? Beauty products. Yeah, and beauty, beauty products. products. Yeah. Yep. Right, right. Okay, okay. And most of these businesses would be run by women, wouldn't they? Yeah, well, well, that's what's great is um, I'm also a, a huge fan of um, female founders, so it's all about supporting them uh, and, you know, obviously helping more of them get to bigger numbers in business. So, What are the specific issues that female entrepreneurs have to deal with? Um, a lot of the time it's um, their own limiting beliefs around compromise, to be honest. Uh, they feel that, you know, by having a bigger business it might compromise their time with the family or their time for themselves or whatever it is. But uh, what, what is interesting and what I was writing the book about is, you know, women are great at running businesses. So, you know, playing a bigger game in business actually gives you more flexibility, not less. I mean, we all know that when you're the um, sole you know, if you've got five employees and half of them get sick, guess who it lands on? But when you get a much bigger business, especially over the 10 mil mark, uh, you know, you've got management teams and, you know, large teams so that you can uh, basically depend on them to help run your business. It, it doesn't depend on you. And not only that, you've got an asset, right? So you can, you know, sell that asset. You've got options, um, which I think women need to really take control of their own financial um, stability. And, you know, we're paid 20 less, 20% less in the workplace. We have a lot less super. So, you know, this is a great way for them to grow an asset um, and they've got options to sell that business if they want to. So for me, you know, getting to a bigger business is actually that a lot more flexibility for a woman than having a small one that depends on you. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is uh, I think a lot of women say to themselves, okay, I'll, am I worthy, you know, am I capable? Um, so we take a lot longer to convince ourselves to take the plunge, um, whereas I find, you know, I hang around a lot of men in business, they go, yeah, we can, we can do this. They don't need to have done it before or have that track record. They'll give it a go. So... I don't know if it's a risk-taking profile or not, but um, I find that, uh, you know, if women can, can give themselves permission to play a big game of business, they're, they're extremely capable. But, you know, I'm in YPO at the moment, um, which is Young Presidents' Organisation, which is like an average turnover of 45 mil, and I think we're well under 10% of members are females. So, you know, that's concerning. I guess with women too, uh, with many of them having families, it would be a case of living blended lives wouldn't it yes i'm glad you used the word blend and not balance um because you know balance doesn't work that theory's been proven wrong constantly i don't think i've met anyone who's got that right so you know the other great thing about running your own business um is you know you get to make the rules so if that means that you're working school hours and then doing some extra work at night then then that's great so we we can then create our own environment from which we don't have to compromise. So I blend all the time. I, I'm unapologetic about it and I, because I have two young kids and I'm not going to compromise on my time for them with them. So, you know, we have open conversations in my office around, okay, well, 
you know, what have we got on this week? And instead of it being about meetings, it might also be my kids at Stedford is on or she's getting a award on stage or she's got her tennis championship um, on Friday. And we all talk about our family commitments and what time that's taking out of our day. And then work has to work in around that. Because at the end of the day, it's not about your nine to five. It's not productive. It's actually about your value, which is what I talk about in the book. What is your value? What value do you bring to the business, not what is your time worth in value? Does that make sense? Yes, yes, yes. But, uh, I mean, that's a completely different model from uh, what we have always talked about, balance. That, that, that doesn't work. No. Well, you think about what balance is, right? What happens is it's two sides of the scale and it's weighted on both sides. And if you work too much at work, you feel like you need to take some off and then put it on the other side. So you're constantly taking from one to the other to try and keep this balance. And when you talk about work and family, that's two sides of the um, spectrum. What about self? And in all of us, whether you're female or male, self is really important because if you're not functioning and if you're not in a good headspace and if you're not healthy, then you're no good to the work or the family. So for me, I think that whole model is fundamentally flawed and we need to get to a model where we put, bring all three together and we try and do all three things at once. So a blended scenario might be, I mean, I'm only in the office one to two days a week. That's all I do. And the rest of the time I'm either travelling or at home. But if somebody from the office wants to see me, I say, great, well, you know what, I live near the beach. Why don't you um, come up for the day, bring the kids and we'll go for a walk on the beach. We can talk work. So we're getting exercise you know, we're um, outdoors, which is lovely, um, getting some beach time. Um, we're talking work, but we're also spending time with the kids. Or, um, you know, you're spending three hours at work, going and having two hours off to do the school run uh, and then coming back and revisiting work later. And we, the productivity time has been proven at three hours to four hours is the maximum that you can get. So why we're pushing people to do eight hours, I don't really understand. Well, Tamara, it's been delightful talking to you and thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. And now let's talk to IFM Chief Economist, Alex Joyner. Alex Joyner, the uh, last figures with Australia's GDP were pretty uninspiring, uh, 1.4%. The economy is growing, but barely. Uh, what's your take on it? Well, it's clear that the economy is struggling at the moment. Uh, the narrative is of a decelerating rate of real GDP growth. But when you scratch under the figures, there's, there's probably even worse news there. Uh, when we look at GDP per capita, uh, that measure is now negative year on year. So the amount being produced per person is actually negative now. Productivity is very, very weak. And also when we pair back what the public service or the public sector, sorry, has added to GDP growth in the quarter you can see that private demand is very, very weak. And that's where it's concerning because that's corporate Australia, that's small businesses. Um, three out of the last four quarters of real growth in the private sector have been negative, slightly negative, but still negative. And you could argue that the private sector is actually in recession because of that. And that's really the concern around jobs growth because it's corporate Australia and the small businesses of Australia that employed people. So that's another reason we think that the uh, unemployment rate has a little bit of upward pressure on it going forward. The Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, says, look, this is a, uh, a one-off and things will pick up uh, in the next quarter because of uh, the tax cuts going through and the interest rate cuts. Uh, 
Is that the case? Well, there's a lot of stimulus that's come into the system, uh, and tax cuts are a meaningful part of that. But when you look at that in the broader context of the economy, it's really quite a small impact. The low to middle income tax offset is around about 0.2% of household consumption. So if we do see a little impact in the third quarter, it will be actually quite small. Uh, and on the interest rate story, while interest rates take a little bit longer to feed through to the real economy uh, to get businesses to change their plans to invest and their plans to employ, and that's usually a 12 to 18 month lag. That's where economists look for that effect. Where we're seeing the effect of interest rates more quickly is actually an asset market. And obviously, in the Australian context, that's uh, the property sector. And we've seen auction clearance rates really ramp up quite quickly post-election. There's been a bit of a confidence boost there. Uh, APRA's eased its uh, lending restrictions that banks have to put through on borrowers. So we've really seen a sharp reaction in the property market, and that's really what the Reserve Bank doesn't want. You know, Phil Lowe's talked about the risks of lower policy still not having that impact on the real economy, but having it on asset prices. And that's something that's undesirable for the Reserve Bank because it knows you know, household debt to GDP ratios are, are still very, very high in Australia and they haven't been repaired. And we're sort of creating that risk down the track that will eventually be, you know, have to be dealt with. And you know, we already see the, the impact of high household debt in the economy, you know, retail sales is very, very sluggish. And, you know, while we're not too worried about the serviceability of that debt, nor the, the, the risks to financial stability, clearly a highly indebted household sector is not going to be as readily spending on, you know, things like discretionary retail sales and, you know, going out to dinner and those sorts of things. So we're really seeing that pressure uh, build in the economy. Which is why the retail sales figures will continue to be low. Well, that's right. Uh, I think retail sales is getting squeezed from many angles. It's being crowded out by households' uh, willingness to actually spend on services, and there's more services to spend on, you know, your, your mobile phones and these sorts of things, but also essential services. And this is education, healthcare, utilities, where it's a, it's a non-discretionary spend. So, you know, what's left over after that is then being spent on retail sales. So there's a still a weak demand narrative from the household sector with regard to discretionary retail sales. And then you're seeing that environment compounded in the retail sector by wage costs. Now, wage, wage growth isn't high, but you know it's a significant cost to uh, retail businesses. And also, uh, the retail sector is very import intensive. So a lower Australian dollar isn't necessarily good for the retail sector because it just boosts its uh, cost of goods. So, you know, it's getting squeezed in terms of its margins from the cost side while trying to operate in a, in a weak demand environment. And that's something that we see that has persisted for an extended period of time, and I think it will persist for an extended period of time, particularly as wage growth is very, very slow to pick up. The other worrying part was the latest profit reporting season. Uh, there were more downsides and upsides to it, and there were many companies who were reporting lower than expected figures and uh, the only reason we had a boost in profits was because of the mining sector. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a narrative of the broader uh, Australian economy. You know, as I said earlier, the, the private sector is, is very, very weak. The profit environment is very, very weak, particularly outside the mining sector. And that's you know, the, the part of uh, the Australian economy that relies on nominal GDP growth and the wages growth of 
households in order to, to see a better outlook. And I think that's, that's problematic because Australia has become overly reliant on these things. Now, there's the prospect that Australia will record a, what we call, as economists, a, a twin surpluses. So this is a, a current account surplus, which we've already seen in the balance of payments, and the likelihood that we will see uh, a fiscal surplus, uh, maybe in MyEFO uh, later this year. Uh, but these two surpluses have been driven by iron ore prices. Uh, you know, higher than expected iron ore prices have been very, very good for the trade balance, and we've seen sort of record monthly trade balances be recorded in recent months, but also very good for corporate taxation revenues for the government. And that's why, you know, you can see that uh, the Treasury is, is, is pretty happy with where the budget's heading at the moment. So iron ore prices have been a key benefit for the Australian economy, and that's on the profit side as well. But it's also a vulnerability because they're dis decided in the global market. And you know, we see them coming off um, as supply comes back on from uh, South, uh, South American sources. Uh, and also as some of the demand out of China sort of starts to soften as their economic growth rate starts to decelerate or continues to decelerate. Sorry. So iron ore could actually fall back? Yes. Price. Yes. And, and it's interesting to see... The assumptions that the government made or the Treasury made in its, uh, in its uh, budget around a higher iron ore price coming back to a lower iron ore price. Now, they still have $55 a tonne, uh, and that's quite conservative. So we'd expect it to stay above that, but it just won't be as good for uh, the government, and it won't be as good for the trade surplus. The other thing that has been boosting, and this gets into some a little bit of technical uh, economic speak, but... Uh, what we call living standards in Australia. So real net income growth per capita. It's, it's a bit economics-y, but it's really what we call living standards. And living standards um, have been driven by gains in the terms of trade recently, and that's been a very, very good thing. But it has masked what has been very, very weak productivity growth. So it's basically given the uh, government a free pass on productivity-enhancing reform, and we don't think that that can persist over the long term. The interesting part is the dialogue going on between the RBA, Philip Lowe, and the government. And Philip Lowe is saying, listen, interest rates can only do so much. We need some fiscal stimulus from you, the government. And the government is not moving in that area. Well, that's right. It's, it's been part of Phil Lowe's and the Reserve Bank's narrative for some time now that we need some fiscal help. For monetary policy. Monetary policy cannot solve the myriad of problems that we have in the Australian economy in the same way that global central banks are not able to fix some of the problems in advanced economies. And what we see that these are structural problems in the global economy. You know, this is lower potential growth rates and, and weaker inflation rates that have structural headwinds. And what we've been trying to do over, you know, for, for decades now is to address these structural problems with monetary policy, which is a cyclical tool. So we've just seen this structural ratcheting down of interest rates, and now we're at a point where there's, there's not much more to go. Now, I believe the Reserve Bank will need to cut rates further, but it would prefer not to, and that's given those risks that I alluded to earlier with household debt and, and asset prices. It doesn't want that to happen. So it's appealing to the government to do more, but the government is in a position where it has no appetite to do more on the fiscal side because of a political agenda. And that political agenda is simply that they want to record a budget surplus and they want to get that in black and white. 
And before that time, I don't, I don't see them doing anything more on fiscal than they're currently doing. Well, ironically, with interest rates so low, the government could borrow to fund infrastructure and not pay much. Well, that's right. The, the borrowing um, ability of the government is boosted twofold because Australia has low uh, government debt to GDP, much, much lower than advanced economies. We're around 30% of GDP when you add up uh, the federal government and, and the states. Uh, and that's compared to about 90%, which is the average of um, advanced economies across the, world, across the world. So there is very much scope to do more. But it seems like the government won't do more. Uh, it can borrow at a very, very low rate, a historically low rate. And the other thing that I would add in that space, it, we don't have to rely solely on the government. Uh, you know, there is an enormous pool of capital out there in the superannuation system, 147% of GDP, that is willing to participate in infrastructure spending. And you know, that's where you know, the superannuation system uh, needs to create a narrative where it can work with the government more readily um, to participate in, you know, more infrastructure, and you know, we need that. Uh, there is a need for that. It's demand-driven infrastructure, uh, and that would be a positive for near-term growth, and, and also the productivity that I was talking about as a, as a medium-term imperative. Well, this will be something we'll watch with great interest. And Alex Joyner, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Liam. A pleasure. So, what's happening in the news? Well, China's exports unexpectedly contracted in August with sales to the US tumbling amid the escalating trade war between the two nations. Exports decreased 1% in dollar terms from a year earlier, while imports declined 5.6%, leaving a trade surplus of $34.84 billion. Economists had forecast that exports would grow 2.2%, while imports would shrink 6.4%. Shipments to the US fell 16% from a year earlier. President Donald Trump's administration raised tariffs on Chinese goods at the start of the month and is set to ratchet up levies further in October and again in December if there's no breakthrough. China and the US will hold face-to-face trade negotiations in Washington in the coming weeks after rapid deterioration in relations last month left global investors reeling amid increasing evidence the conflict is harming both nations. And a Washington Post ABC News poll found Six in ten Americans say that a recession is either very likely or somewhat likely in the next year. That fear compares with 69% who said a recession was likely in fall 2007, shortly before the recession began later that year. Concerns over the economy, and specifically Trump's handling of trade negotiations with China, have become a drag on the president's public standing, particularly with women. And the world must invest $1.8 trillion by 2030 to prepare for the effects of global warming. And that will yield $7.1 trillion in benefits, according to a group led by Bill Gates and Ban Ki-moon. Slowing the planetary march towards climate catastrophe and the multi-trillion dollar investment required to do it has become a central issue of global and national debate. But there's the equally expensive matter of dealing with the here and now, From historic wildfires to unprecedented hurricanes, global warming has reshaped the lives of millions with increasingly tragic consequences. While humans must pay to end the burning of fossil fuels, they must also pay to change how they live, invest and build in a climate change world. On Monday, an international commission of government and private sector officials told countries and corporations they have 15 months to jumpstart reforms aimed at adapting to the changing environment. In a new report, 
the 34-member group led by Microsoft Corp founder Bill Gates, former UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon, and World Bank Chief Executive Officer Kristalina Georgieva, concluded that $1.8 trillion in investment by 2030, concentrated in five categories, weather warning systems, infrastructure, dry land farming, mangrove protection, and water management, would yield $7.1 trillion in benefits. Chief among them are avoiding the costs of waiting too long. And in Australia, business conditions deteriorated by another two points to their weakest level in five years, and confidence slumped by 2.4 points in August, according to the latest NAB business survey. Both are well below their long-run averages. Momentum in the business sector continues to slow, with profitability at its weakest level in more than five years, and trading and forward orders also down, following disappointing non-mining profits and private investment data from last week's releases. That does not bode well for the third quarter. And pessimism about the Australian economy is on the rise. First, the ANZ Roy Morgan Australian Consumer Confidence Index fell 1% last week. And then the Melbourne Institute and Westpac Bank Consumer Sentiment Index dropped by 1.7% to 98.2% in September, swinging from a 3.6% rise in August. And demand for mortgages picked up sharply in response to rate cuts in June and July, with 5.1% growth in July. This marks its biggest monthly gain in four years as owner-occupiers and investors roared back into action as sentiment changed and credit curbs eased. The monthly increase picked up on June's 3.2% gain and lifted the total of monthly new loan commitments to $7.9 billion in seasonally adjusted terms. Investor lending gained 4.7%, the biggest monthly increase since the 9.9% chalked up in September 2016 at the peak of the boom to $4.6 billion, while owner-occupier loans rose 5.3%, the fastest gain in almost four years, to $13.3 billion. And Australia's prudential regulator has been bestowed with a spread of gifts, including expensive chocolates, fruit baskets, and porcelain display plates from some of China's biggest banks. The Australian Prudential Regulation Authority was a lucky recipient of $719 worth of Hague's Christmas chocolates from Bank of China, a $129 fruit basket from Agricultural Bank of China, and a display plate of unknown value made by famous porcelain artists Royal Copenhagen from E. Sun Commercial Bank. It was also gifted a box sake flask and cup valued at $300 from China's Everbright Bank at the opening of its first Australian branch held in February this year at Sydney's Barangaroo. The presents are recorded in the Prudential Regulator's Gift Registry from July 2017 to June 2019, which has been released as part of a Freedom of Information request. Details of the gifts from China's state-owned banks have emerged as APRA battles perceptions that its executives have been captured by a jet-set culture of global regulators making frequent trips to exotic locations. And industry groups have urged the federal government to relax restrictions on foreign skilled workers to allow infrastructure projects to be sped up without exacerbating cost blowouts. Australian industry group head of policy Peter Byrne said more infrastructure could be built faster by increasing the intake of skilled migrants, after Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe said governments could do more on infrastructure spending. Skilled migration is capped at 70,000 people a year, part of a new annual total migration cap of 160,000 people. The total cap was dropped earlier this year by the Prime Minister from 190,000 people previously.
and a greater reluctance by young people to become car owners is worsening the slide in new vehicle sales that has now lasted longer than the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. A 10.1% plunge in the number of new vehicles sold in Australia in August to 85,633 vehicles compared with a year ago had the nation's 3,500 car dealers frustrated at banks and financiers for making it harder for potential buyers to obtain a loan. The new vehicle sales slowdown has now extended 17 months, longer than a 15-month slide during the GFC, with house price falls, uncertainty around the economy and job prospects combining to unnerve potential customers. And Coca-Cola Amatil is folding its Aussie-based alcohol and coffee portfolios into the larger Australian beverages segment as it continues a wider restructure. Under the new organisational restructure announced on Monday, the Australian-based alcohol and coffee operations will join the Australian Beverages team under the leadership of Managing Director Peter West. The Beverages bottler said the move will further simplify its manufacturing and sales model following June's sale of food processing business SPC, with its New Zealand and Fiji business segment also set to absorb New Zealand-based coffee and alcohol. Fiji's Paradise Beverages and the International Alcohol Sales Team. The coffee portfolio in Indonesia will now be part of the Indonesian business. Coca-Cola Amatil's Alcohol and Coffee Managing Director, Shane Richardson, will leave the company following the shuffle. Group Managing Director Alison Watkins last month named the alcohol and coffee segments a bright spot in the company's first half results, with coffee and alcohol revenue growth targets remaining on track for the full 2019 financial year. And the poorest fifth of Australian households are spending more of their income on housing than ever before while the burden is barely changed for the wealthiest household. Analysis from the independent Grattan Institute shows the cost of housing is widening the gap between rich and poor, despite income inequality remaining mostly steady. It finds that once the cost of housing is taken into account, household disposable income has grown by twice as much for the richest Australians than it has for the poorest. The analysis combines Australian Bureau of Statistics figures for disposable income with data on housing and occupancy costs. The ABS assigns Australian households into five groups, known as quintiles, based on disposable income. In 2018, the poorest fifth of Australian households spent 29% of their gross incomes on housing costs. That burden has grown significantly over time, from 21.9% in 1995 and 23.7% in 2008. Meanwhile, the relative cost of housing has barely changed for the richest fifth of Australian households. In 2018, this group spent 9.4% of gross income on housing costs, compared with 9.3% in 1995. Middle-income households, the third quintile, spent 16% of gross income on housing costs in 2018. That was up from 13% in 1995 and 15.1% a decade ago. And Australia's major telecommunications companies have been ordered to block eight websites that are hosting videos of the Christchurch terrorist attacks or the alleged gunman's manifesto in the first move from the e-safety commissioner to use new rules. While the sites have already been blocked voluntarily by the telcos for five months, the violent material hasn't been removed, leading the safety e-commissioner to formally order an additional six months block. The massacre was live-streamed on Facebook and the video was uploaded millions of times across the internet. At the time, there were no guidelines informing the provider what sites to block and when to remove restrictions, and this left the telcos in a difficult legal position. And the corporate watchdog is suing the operator of a boiler room that fired up backpackers with booze cruises and ritzy overseas trips to flog junk insurance to vulnerable people, including Indigenous Australians. 
the Australian Securities Investments Commission filed the action against Select AFSL, Bluing Services, IMS and Director Russell Howden in the Federal Court's New South Wales Registry on Monday morning. ASIC is alleging the companies and their representatives broke multiple provisions of the Corporations Act and the ASIC Act. While not all of the lawyers carry a financial penalty, it is understood a bill could run into the tens of millions of dollars. Court documents list 14 examples of vulnerable customers who were lied to, misled or otherwise bulldozed into buying insurance policies they had no use for. An insurance giant Suncor says there's a heightened risk of bushfires this summer, echoing warnings from experts after unusually warm and dry conditions earlier in the year. After parts of northern New South Wales and Queensland have been hit by fires that destroyed homes during the first week of spring, Chief Executive of Suncor, Steve Johnson, said the insurer had a higher expectation of bushfires over the coming summer. Although he was reluctant to make firm predictions, Mr Johnson pointed out there was more potential fuel for bushfires than in the past two years. Earlier this year, Suncor lifted its budget for natural disaster claims, in part because climate change is causing more frequent extreme events. Suncor owns a range of major insurance brands including AAMI, GIO, Bingle and Apia, and its view is consistent with the insurance industry's peak body, the Insurance Council of Australia. And Australian business leaders' skills lag those of their American counterparts with a chunk of sales, revenue and profit potentially being left behind by poor managers, a study has found. As separate research warns of a growing market concentration in some of the nation's key export sectors, work done by the Federal Industry Department suggests efforts to develop new Australian firms will, will flounder without a boost in management ability. The study released on Monday, looked at a range of ways management ability is measured at the firm level, from overall skills to particular issues such as digital ability and supply chain administration. It found American business managers outperformed Australian managers across all measures. An online retailer, Kogan, has launched its power and gas offering to customers as part of its strategy to become a one-stop household shop. Residential customers in Victoria, New South Wales, South East Queensland and South Australia can now purchase power off Kogan Energy and customers in Victoria also have the option to buy gas through the online retailer. The power is provided by renewables generator Meridian Energy through its subsidiary PowerShop. PowerShop will provide back-end and system support for Kogan Energy customers. And gender equality among Australia's top chief executive ranks could be 80 years away with the latest survey showing female appointments are going backwards and some companies have no women at all in their leadership teams. Of the 25 chief executives appointed to lead Australia's top 200 companies in 2019, only two were women, with a percentage of women in the top role slipping to 6% from 7% a year earlier. The annual census by Chief Executive Women which represents 560 of Australia's most senior female corporate leaders, slams slow progress in achieving gender balance, with 17 companies still having no women in their executive leadership teams. And more needs to be done to encourage women to become tradies, according to a Charles Sturt University study. It identified hurdles at every stage for a woman's career, which prevents them entering these male-dominated industries and assisting with a skill shortage, such as the fact that girls are more likely to be pushed towards higher education than boys through to a lack of appropriate facilities, such as toilets and change rooms for women on work sites. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Marcus Schmidt, founder and CEO of CopyTrack, a leading worldwide image copyright enforcer. CopyTrack protects image copyrights for professional photographers and ensures photographers get paid for unauthorised use of their work. And then I'll be talking to Michael Ivory, Head of Financial Markets Research Asia-Pacific for Rabobank, 
We'll be talking about the latest in the trade war between the US and China. And of course, I'll be bringing all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 